following is a production of Word Alive Creative Arts. Welcome to the podcast of Word Alive International Outreach in Oxford, Alabama, an apostolic center for transformation and freedom. We pray today that you will be blessed and strengthened by this powerful message. It is such an honor to be with y'all today. I tell you what, God has been so good. And uh, of course, we brought uh, props with us. <laughs> but if you would turn with me in your Bibles, I don't want to delay me along. A good friend of mine, Draper Smith, spiritual son of mine from years ago, told me amazing things about this house and uh, told me amazing things about your past. And listen, it's such an honor. You have no idea the honor. It is to be with y'all today. Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. And um, just so you know, uh, Matt and I, we brought books with us. A whole shipment uh, got misdirected some kind of way, but they'll be here for you guys next week. But it's this book right here, The Dream King, How the Dream of Martin Luther King is Being Fulfilled to Heal Racism in America. This book will equip you in prayer probably uh, better than any book that I think that's out that's going to deal with some of the issues regarding, one, bringing revival to America. How many of you know we need a spiritual awakening in our nation right now? Two, we need to equip the church with know how to navigate through healing the racial divide in our nation and contend for every, every life being valued and giving dignity and honor to it. So I desperately want you to get a hold of this. So we have we have uh, some copies out here today, and more will be here for you guys next week. Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, starting at verse 4, says this. So Joshua called the 12 men who had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you. So that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? That you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. All right. So read that scripture. And then uh, let me read one more. I'm going to call an audible for the guys in the back. Uh, John 17. Go with me to John 17 real quick. John 17. Now, this is Jesus praying, right? This is the red letter stuff. But he's letting us hear his prayer. He's letting us see, read this prayer. This is recorded for a purpose. I was trying to think about, God, why would you allow us to hear what you're praying? I now remember. So back in the day, I remember my college days, my little knucklehead days, right? <laughs> My backslidden knucklehead days. <laughs> I remember being in college, Morehouse College, and uh, coming home for the summer in Fort Worth, Texas, and, uh, you know, sneaking out, drinking with my friends, all that kind of stuff. And I remember sneaking into the house about 2 or 3 in the morning, thinking I wasn't going to disturb my mother. <laughs> right? What was she up doing, y'all? Y'all know what she was doing. She was up, she was up praying, walking the floor, praying for me. And I overheard her praying for me. You talking about a buzzkill, right? <laughs> you talking about sobering me right up. She's going to town, going, going after God, praying for me, praying over my destiny, praying over my purpose, contending for the promises of God and made to her regarding my life. But years later, you know, I realized, I realized, Pastor Kent, 
She knew I was in the room. She wanted me to hear what she was contending for related to my destiny and purpose. I will submit to you, that's what John 17 is. This is Jesus. This is his prayer time. He's contending for our purpose, contending for our destiny. Look at John 17. I'm going to start at verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. The first part he says, when he says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, he's talking about the disciples. But that second part where he says, but for those also who believe in me through their word, turn to your neighbor and say, he's praying for you now. What's he praying? That they may be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst sent me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and thou and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst sent me and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. One more audible. <laughs> Go with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, I don't want to take this for granted. I want you all to see this in Scripture. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. When you pray, something powerful happens in the heavenly realm. And your prayers are actually collected because that's how important they are to God. Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And what did they have with them? Having each one a harp representing worship and golden bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. If I was going to title this, Matt, anything, I would call this, Don't You Remember? Don't you remember? Come on, let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, we're so honored to be back in the land of our forefathers. We're so honored to be here with this amazing church, your amazing people. God, thank you for so much for 200 years of faithfulness to Alabama and all of our families. And we're just so thankful for this amazing grace that we get to stand in. We're so thankful that the one that we should fear the most is the one who loves us the most. And that you love us so much that you'd rather die than spend eternity without us. What kind of love is that? And then you rose to give us everlasting life. We're so thankful for it. And that you ever live to make intercession for us, you're praying for us even right now. So God, we ask you to release the spirit of wisdom and revelation in our midst. Take us deeper in intimacy and fellowship with you. And Holy Spirit, come do what you do best and what you love most to do. Make us love Jesus Christ more than we did before we first came in. Stir us up by way of remembrance in the place of prayer and intercession. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, so like I said, it's an honor to be with you because honestly, you know, my family has its roots in Alabama and, and throughout Louisiana, other parts of the South. And this kettle pot is actually from the South. It's actually from uh, Lake Providence, Louisiana. Lake Providence, Louisiana, I don't think it's a mistake that it comes from uh, Lake Providence. You're going to hear a lot of uncoincidental coincidences in this story today. <laughs> and 
I love uh, in, in the Jewish culture, they say that in, in, in Hebrew, there actually isn't a word for coincidence. It's just the hand of God moving throughout. In the book of Esther, you don't see the name of God even mentioned, but the hand of God is moving throughout. Every time they pray, every time they, 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 they intercede, something powerful will begin to happen. It's the providence of God. Matter of fact, the pilgrims used to call just that providence. Providence, according to Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. In other words, you have no idea how many things God prevented from happening to get you here, right here, right where you are today. You have no idea how many things you stumbled across and stepped into, and all of a sudden you want, wow, how did I get that job? How did I get that promotion? How did I wind up in this place? You thought it was a mistake, but God was work, work, working all things together for the good for you. And then when you least was thinking about it, God was answering somebody else's prayer to get you into that place. And whether it's somebody 200 years ago or two weeks ago, especially in this church, but 2,000 years ago, somebody had you on their mind. It's the greatest intercessor who still lives to make intercession. He had you on his mind praying for you. And the way that you step into this understanding of providence is through prayer. You begin to pray, and all of a sudden, things just begin to happen. <laughs> That's what you're going to hear in this story. I love the way Archbishop of Canterbury says it. He says, when I pray, the coincidences happen, but when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. <laughs> right. The best understanding of that is in Ephesians 2 and 10, where it says that we're, uh, we're Christ's workmanship, and we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. It's the best understanding of the prophets that I know of is in the New Testament there. But that word workmanship is a powerful word. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. All right, so you hear the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. But even greater than that, the word poema was a word that was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor or fabric maker. In other words, God has a tailor-made plan, a tailor-made destiny for your life. Now, you ever see one side of a tapestry and it looks like it's just a bunch of knots and tatters everywhere. And then all of a sudden you ask that person, hey, what are you working on? I say, oh, well, let me show you the other side of it. And they let you see the other side of what they're really working on. That's what God is doing with this story. Listen, God is turning the tapestry around to let us know, one, that he's still answering the prayers of our forefathers. Two, he's working on a whole other narrative that's bigger than the narrative that the enemy is trying to project through the media and everything else. But also, you are part of this storyline. This is not just our story. This is all of our story. All right? So, to get started, let me uh, share with you just this real quick, if y'all have it for me to, to put it up. Let me put up this uh, clip from the, the dreamer himself, Dr. King. Let's go ahead and play that clip real quick. Do I have a dream uh, speech clip? as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream.
powerful speech, but the thing I love about it is this. I'm one of those sons of former slaves. <laughs> and this kettle pot was actually owned by the slaves of my family. They use it for cooking. They use it for washing clothes. But secretly, they use it for another reason. It was a, this, this has been a, a memorial stone that's been passed down from generation to generation in our family. You read the story there in Joshua chapter 4 about the memorial stones. What were they? Well, Israel is coming up to the Jordan River, and the Lord needs to part the Jordan River the same way he, he did it for the Red Sea for a whole generation before him. But listen, there's a whole generation of people that had never seen a Red Sea part, let alone Jordan River. That, that generation grew up every day with clothes that never wore out. They had manna every day, little cakey white stuff came down. They ate it every day. They had shoes that never wore out. In other words, the supernatural was just normal for them. They were, they, were, they were the recipients of everybody else's sacrifice. They never knew what slavery was like. They grew up in the wilderness. But then they get to the Jordan River, and the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to send a message to their enemies at Jericho and also acquaint this generation with my power. And so the Lord parched the Jordan River the same way he parted the Red Sea. But then the Lord says, you know what? I should have had a V8. <laughs> it's like, it's all the baby boomers got that jug, right? <laughs> it's an old VA commercial. There's a generation that's coming after them. They hadn't seen a Red Sea party or a Jordan River party. So here's what I want you to do for them. I want you to grab stones out of the middle of the Jordan River and pile them up on either side of the Jordan River, even the middle of the Jordan River. And when your sons and daughters ask you later on saying, what do these stones mean to you? You tell them that Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground, and this is the proof. We got these huge stones out of the middle of that Jordan River. Right? And so those stones would have been this memorial for the next generation. Now, those stones were so powerful, it provoked God into a remembrance. It provokes him into a remembrance. The reason why I say that is because later on in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, it says that he rebuilt the altar of Israel, the place where they used to pray. And what did he use to rebuild that altar? He used 12 memorial stones. Wow. Used 12 memorial stones. Why would he use 12 memorial stones? When God saw those memorial stones, you know what he saw? He didn't see a pile of rocks. He saw the 12 great-great-grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow him. Because we have this God who loves to remember. You know, we're made in his image. We're made in his likeness. So you think about it, you know, uh, if I would hand you my scrapbook and you look at some of those pictures, you probably would laugh at some of those afros and some of those polyester suits, which are coming back, by the way. They're coming back. <laughs> but if I was to get that same scrapbook back, I might start weeping because I remember the battles I fought with this person, the things that overcame with that person. Right. The reason why Instagram is so popular is because it holds our... It holds our memories. If we're made in God's image and likeness, think about it. God is made in the same way. He, when he saw those 12 stones piled up in Elijah's day, and Elijah calls down fire, basically Elijah's saying, God, don't you remember? On these old stones, release a new fire for the next generation. And that's what I believe God is doing right now. He's provoking a generation to remember, and he's calling back to, calling us to remember what he's done in the place of prayer for our nation. So honestly, I hadn't thought much about this pot. I go to this little conference in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I hear a man give a powerful message. And part of that message was about synergy. Synergy is this powerful concept where when you take two separate things 
It's the whole concept about synergy as it goes. You take two separate things, and when you place them together, if they're working together, they don't, pro- don't produce an addition in terms of the effort. It brings about a multiplicity of power and effort and results. Scientists say if you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Spiritually, we know that one could put 1,000 to flight and two could put what? 10,000 to flight. That's synergy. So think about it. You saw, we saw getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We saw getting agreement in prayer between the old and the young, male and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before, right? Psalm 133 says, "What well, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. And what? Unity is like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his rope. And the Bible says, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Everybody say there. God's looking for a place called there. It's the place where we drop all our agendas and come together and believe in the place of prayer. And you know what I love about this church is the unity through diversity that I see as I look across here. Listen, God found another place called there. Don't take what y'all have here in terms of unity through diversity for granted. Fight and endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that you have in this place. It's beautiful what I see here in this place. But in Dutch Sheets, who was teaching this message, he said something that was so profound. He said this, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He talked about how he was at his alma mater, this Bible school, leading the student body in prayer. And as he's leading them in prayer, praying for revival here at the Lord, saying to him, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the people. I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And he thought, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. <laughs> He's been dead for more than 30 years. And I know you're not into talking to the dead. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit said to him, I didn't, I didn't say agree with him. I said agree with his prayers. His prayers are still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school right now, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come to agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages coming together. It's like with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised this man back here a nation. Raises up an Isaac, then a Jacob. Breaks that Jacob thing off that boy. Makes him Israel because he promised this man back here a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham. So finally, that scripture in Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 and 40 where it says, All these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith. They were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Because God had... God, God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, we may not be made perfect without them. In other words, God starts something in one generation and he'll complete it exponentially through future generations because he's the kind of God who loves to remember. He never forgets the promises that he makes to our forefathers, to our grandmothers, to our memas and them. He still remembers. So, Psalm 133, this powerful concept, think about it. That Understanding of Psalm 133 is not just about us agreeing also what God started in our today. It's also about agreeing what he starts in our yesterday. The reason why I say that is because the garment of the priest, that one garment, that, that robe was passed down from priest to priest to priest. And so with that was the anointing from the previous generation being accumulated and going from generation to generation to generation. We don't understand that concept because when we anoint somebody today, we just put a little oil on our finger and we thump somebody on the forehead and we call it a day, right? <laughs> That's not what they did back then. 
Scholars say that they would take up to half a gallon or a gallon of oil, a thick anointing oil. They would pour it all over their high priest's head, and the oil would drip down from his head onto his beard and onto his robe. Listen, that one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. But then as he received his anointing from the day, eventually the oil would drip down and mingle with the anointing from the past on that same robe. Then that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum-building anointing in the place of prayer that goes from generation to generation to generation, the saturation of the ages, if you will. So everybody that's looking for the next woman now, lose something, or the purpose-driven this or that, those are great titles, those are great authors. I'm not demunking that. What I'm saying is this. God's not after originality right now. He's after a successor. And to a successor, he released a double portion of anointing on them that was so powerful and not only make them impactful in this generation, but make them a springboard for future generations to come. In the place of prayer. But I hear this thing about agreeing with the prayers of those who have gone before us. And remember what God started. And then I remember this kettle pot that's been in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes, but secretly, it was used for prayer. They were owned by a slave master there in Lake Providence who would beat them for any reason, and praying was one of them. So the irony of the peculiar institution is this, is that the peculiar institution being slavery, what was so peculiar about it is that they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves, be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know that's not true. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that none of us should boast. But it was, it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. But the irony is that while they wanted them to be Christians, they didn't want them to pray because they felt like prayer would foster hope. They got hopeful. They thought they would try to run away. So this, this, this slave master there would literally beat them if he heard them praying. Give an example how cruel... He was, the story is passed down in our family about a man named Uncle Willie who decided to go fishing without asking on the plantation. And so the slave master decided to make an example out of him. So he strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. They then took this leather strap, which was shredded, which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat and nine tails. And he beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was put off his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, they took... A huge sheet and put lard or grease on it and they wrapped it around his body. They put grease on the sheet so that the cotton on the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. But in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was on this plantation. And if they were caught praying, these folks would be beaten as well. But listen, the folks who passed down this pot in my family, they were Christians in the middle of slavery and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they would sneak into a barn on the plantation while everyone was asleep in the middle of the night. But to muffle their voices, they used this kettle pot. This is the very pot that they used. They would sneak in there with this pot, and they would take the pot and put it in the middle of the cabin floor, as the story was told to us, and it was inverted. It was turned upside down. They then would take rocks to use it to prop up the edges, about three or four rocks, and then they would put their lips in between the opening, between the ground and the kettle, 
said the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. So one day, I'm sorry, I've shared this three or four times. It gets to me about the third or fourth time that I shared this. There's a young teenage girl decided to keep this pot in that store in our family. We don't know what her name is to this day, but she decided to keep this pot in that store in our family. Why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those secret prayer meetings that she snuck into where people risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and this story in our family, and she passes the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett then passed it on to her son, to her, to her daughter, Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then gave it to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm hearing this man talking about how we can agree with the prayers of those who have gone before us. And I remember this kettle pot in my family. I remember this memorial that God's passed down. <laughs> And then I think about the obligation. To whom much is given, much is required. You know, back then they had a slave master that kept them from praying. At least tried to prevent them. But today we have our own willing masters like Facebook, social media. Not trying to guilt you into prayer, I'm just saying. There's a whole nother realm waiting for us on the other side of our obedience. There's a whole generation just waiting for us to contend for them in the place of prayer. We got to take up the sacrifice of our forefathers now. The commitment of our forefathers has now become the calling of our time. In the place of prayer. But then I thought about the privilege. Oh my God, I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers. For the freedom of this next generation. I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. That sheep was telling me, he said, well, you know, we were talking about doing this prayer journey around the country. He said, God, you really want me to use some cast iron kettle pot to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? See, literally, Revelation 5, and they said they're what? Bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Every time you pray, it's collected, not in wooden bowls, not in Tupperware bowls, but in golden bowls. Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over Oxford. There's a prayer bowl over Alabama. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls once again. That's why I love this initiative that you're doing right now. Does said he was looking for confirmation, and his Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught up for prayers. It could be used to represent the bowls in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. And he said this, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony? They used the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again. So I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. There were also white Christian abolitionists 
who knew that if any person was a slave, was a Christian, knew that that person was their brother. Many of those white abolitionists had their houses burned. They were shot. They were killed. They were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wicked slavery. Because that knew that Christian slave was their brother. They fought for each other. Help me to realize something. See, if my ancestors have been Muslims or Buddhists, I have no connection to this part of its history. But listen, because they were Christians, now these my ancestors and forefathers, they're yours too. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney as you are Martin Luther King and William Seymour. And when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, something powerful happens. The oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. Yokes get broken over generations. See, it was the prayers of a godly remnant of people back then that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Those white abolitionists, those black Christian slaves, they prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. There was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which everybody thought sealed the fate of slaves in our nation. But God sends a revival, transforms the heart, and then brings reformation to our nation. That's why I'm daring to believe. Listen, the same God who brought the power of Dred Scott, listen, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can shut down the opiate crisis that's happening in the suburbs and shut down crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. And he wants to heal this race issue too. I know that because I had a dream about the dreamer, Martin Luther King. I was on my way to minister at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Aaron Montgomery. But the night before I go to minister, I had a dream about Dr. King. In the dream, my friend and I, Lou Engel, were on our way to Dexter Avenue to minister. But before we get to, could get there, we had to first go pick up Dr. King. Side note. There's some things from our past that we better pick up so we can move forward in the right way. So in this dream, it's a dream, of course, and Dr. King is alive. We go by this house, and he comes out, and he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. And he throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag can make a nice souvenir. So as y'all carnal I am, right? Even in my dreams, I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College, he went to Morehouse College, the bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> so in the dream, I go to try to pick up the baggage, but before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. He starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in our nation. I began to weep in the dream, but when I wake up, my pillow was soaked in tears. I've been weeping in intercession the whole night and didn't even realize it. Share my friend Lou Engel. He begins to weep. We're like, God, what's the interpretation for this dream? I'm like, God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that will be the interpretation for your dream. <laughs> right then I knew what God was talking about. I knew the black handles represented how I, as a black man, had been handling my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. So I knew what he was talking about because I knew what it's like at 13 years old. Myself and three friends, we were chased by a carload full of white guys who called us the N-word and said they're going to shoot and kill us. 
chase for so over two hours. They were probably just joyriding, but listen, we were terrified. I know it's like at 19 to be falsely accused of shoplifting, and when the officer couldn't find anything on me, uh, tried to provoke me into a fight. I know it's like later on in my 30s to have my first nice house and nice neighborhood, but the same police officer for every week for about three first three months would just pull me over for just for driving while black. I know what that feels like, but you know what I've done? For every white person and every police officer in that region, I put those three storylines on everybody before I had one conversation with them. Before I ever get to know anybody, I'd already categorized them. I'd already stigmatized them. It's the devil's diabolical plot, y'all. It's Revelation 12, where it says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The word accuser comes from the Greek word kategoros. It's where we get the word category. So in other words, the diabolical plot is get us to categorize, a stereotype each other, so that before we can have one conversation with each other, we put some bad story that we've heard on everybody before we have one understanding of who they really are. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question for all of us right now is this. What color is your baggage? God's saying to us all, get rid of it because we need each other. Because only a united church can heal a divided nation. So, friend asked me to share that story and bring the kettle in. We went to the Lincoln Memorial, January 17, 2005. But I go to that pulpit there at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and I have this huge book called A Testament of Hope. falls open to the I Have a Dream speech. <laughs> I go to Dr. King's old pulpit, and I start reading that speech like a prayer. And then I get to this part where Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. And I thought, God, whatever happened to that family that owned our family? And for the first time, I prayed for them. But little did I know that God was connected us together, this masterful weaver. I want to bring up my friend, Matt Lockett. Please come. Good morning. Merry Christmas. You got your shopping done? Because uh, I figure y'all been shopping online or something because FedEx did not get the books here in time for today. <laughs> Everybody's shopping on Amazon or something. They're too busy. I, uh, I want to say yes and amen to this all-in 2020 strategy. Uh, Will and I were down in Montgomery yesterday and uh, had the ch uh, privilege to go in the, the Alabama Supreme Court to pray with uh, one of the justices down there. Uh, you know him, uh, Chief Justice Tom Parker. And uh, we stepped into the, the main lobby area of the rotunda there, and there was a Christmas tree, which didn't really stand out that much, but then when we got closer, this Christmas tree had 67 ornaments. One ornament for every county, and I'm just, I'm so encouraged, because I've been thinking about this strategy uh, all weekend, and um, see, I've got family history here in Alabama, I'll talk a little bit about that this morning, but... Uh, when Perry County, when it's time for Perry County, I'm coming back. I, I, want, I want to be in. And I had a little 
laugh to myself this morning because pastor called y'all to pray and everybody was like, yeah, then he called you to fast. And everybody was like, yeah. Then he called you to fast once a week all year long and about five people clapped and three of you were lying. (laughs) It's going to be a good year. God's got to do some work on us. Amen. Well, uh, I'm going to just start right where Will left off, and we're going to keep going with the story. You guys, are you enjoying story time this morning? Okay, good. I like story time. So Will brought us up to this one particular day. He had shared that dream about uh, Dr. King and the, the white bag with the black handles, and his friend Lou Engle asked him... Uh, to come and share that at a prayer gathering he was doing in, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And let me just add this real quick. We were down in Montgomery yesterday, and it was awesome because uh, when Will had that dream, he was in Montgomery. And the, the day after he had that dream, he was in Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And he was standing in King's pulpit when the book falls open, by coincidence, to the I Have a Dream speech. And it was there that he, he shared that dream and he prayed. And yesterday when we were in Montgomery, it was the 200th birthday of Alabama. And so there's parades and all kinds of activities going on. But all these doors were open yesterday. So I got to go and stand in Dexter Avenue uh, Baptist Church with Will yesterday. It just kind of feels like we're in a moment right now. And, and I, I've just learned that moments matter. Like my life changed in a moment. Jesus saved me when I was 15 years old. One day I, I was one way and the next moment I was different. And so I, I've just learned this, especially over the last few years that God's told me that moments matter. And so I think this moment that we're in, it, we dare not miss it. Because I think your life can change in a moment, my life can change in a moment, but I think a state and a nation can change in a moment. And we're all in a process of moments that are just building up, and it just feels like we're just sitting, Pastor, right on the edge of a tidal wave of God answering the prayers that have gone before us. And so even when I was standing in Dexter Avenue Baptist Church with Will yesterday, I felt like it's just like a pregnant moment, like the purposes of God residing in a state like Alabama. So you better fast this next year. (laughs) That's the same five people clapping on that one. Yeah. So Lou Engle, how many of you know who Lou Engle is? Oh, okay, this is great. A lot of you do. So he asked Will, would you come? We're going to do a prayer gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day, January 17, 2005, Would you come and pray with us there and tell the story about this dream and tell the story of the kettle? And and so I'm going to start right there on that day, but I'm going to back up just a little bit. One year, actually one year exactly. It was January 17th, 2004. Something really unexpected happened. I tragically lost my father. He passed away on that day. Now, uh, some of you in this room have lived through an experience like that where you've lost a parent. Some of you younger ones haven't been through that yet. Guess what? You're going to at some point. 
But something happens when you lose mom and dad. And I've lost both of my parents now at this point in my life. But when you lose mom and dad, it, it, throws, it can throw you for a tailspin. And uh, like I said, I became a Christian when I was 15. But here I was, an adult man, and I lost dad. And, and I just, I unexpectedly found myself going into one of those tailspins. And you start asking really hard questions at that time that demand really big answers. So here I am, an adult I've been a Christian for a long time, but I was asking questions, real big ones like, who am I? Why am I here? What's the story that I'm supposed to be telling? See, when you're a young person, you spend your whole life hearing the stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And uh, you're the recipient of all of it, but when you lose mom and dad, something really profound happens. The mantle of the storytelling now passes to you. You become the steward of the storyline. And so you have to decide in those days, what is the story that I'm going to tell going forward? Are we going to bury this thing and cover it up and keep repeating the same mistakes generation after generation? Or as the people of God, are we going to believe that God wants to do something different? See, I'm a believer. You know what that means? It means I believe something. I believe that my life has value. I believe my life has purpose. I believe that God has designed something for me. And it's so imperative that we lock in on the storyline that God wants to tell with our lives. This is so profound. Even this morning, as that prophetic song was being released, God knows my name. I leaned over to Will. I'm like, this is so simple, but it touches us at the deepest part of who we are. Such a simple and profound truth. God knows my name. He knows you. He knows who you are. See, God didn't get a cold and sneeze at you and you fell out in the timeline. There's, you aren't an accident. Nobody is just an accident. He actually, I look at it this way. God, at some point, God had a dream and then he wrapped flesh and bone around that dream, and you are the embodiment of the dream of God. You're not an accident. And see, I'm a believer, so that what that tells me is that, that your life has purpose, my life has purpose, and it's only through that lens that you can make sense of the pain that you've gone through. If you don't understand that, then all the bad things that have happened in your life, none of it will make sense. You'll think that you just got the short end of the stick and that God doesn't care. But when you have the right perspective that God knows your name and that you're not an accident, only then can you make sense of all the bad stuff you've had to endure. And then you come to the realization that actually God can take all the bad stuff that the enemy meant for evil, but then he can turn it and flip it around and use it for good. And then you realize that even the bad stuff that you've had to go through, maybe just maybe it's because God needed you to go through the heat so he could cook a prayer. That's the only way our lives can make sense. Because you didn't draw the short end of the stick. You are the embodiment of the dream of God. And the bad stuff, yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
but I would say even especially the bad stuff that you've had to go through, God can take that. And you, if you can find yourself in God's storyline, even through that, oh man, it's a, it, all bets are off then because now you're stepping into what Jesus did as the great intercessors. He came down and wallowed in our mud and he identified with everything that we've had to go through. And now God says, now I got somebody that can identify. And he will use you not just to get your own prayers answered and get your grocery list checked off for yourself, but he'll be, use you and the prayers that he's cooked in you to begin to touch the lives around you and reshape the world that's around you. That's a freebie, take it. Let's move on. I get excited about this stuff. So, January 17th. So that year, I was asking God, where, where, who am I? Where did I come from? And uh, one of the things that became really important to me during that time was I wanted to find out where did the lockets come from? What, what is our, our family history? What does the tree look like? How many of you have looked into your family trees? Okay, there's a few hands that went up. I've noticed in the last couple of years especially, I asked that question a lot, and I've noticed that fewer and fewer hands have been raised. And what that tells me and I can't explain it, but what it tells me is that we're actively losing stories right now. That God has done something in our yesterday, and this generation is losing those stories. And we don't know what God has started in the past, and that we are to be the recipients of in our now. So I think God is actually, part of what is God's purpose in this moment is we need to rediscover some of these stories of what God has started in our grandmas and our grandpas, and even beyond them. So I was looking into my family tree, and that was a hard one for me because my dad was one of 16 siblings. They weren't Catholic. They were tobacco farmers in Kentucky, and they needed farm labor. So one of 16 siblings, but none of them in my dad's generation could get beyond my dad's grandfather. See, there had been things like courthouses had burned down, records were lost, but really what we're talking about is somewhere along the way, somebody stopped telling the stories. And so by the time you get to my dad's generation, we had no idea where the lockets came from. There was no history to be discovered. But I decided, you know what, I bet I can succeed where everyone else failed. It's such a boastful statement. But listen, I got cousins on top of cousins that have tried to look into this thing, and no one has ever found anything out. And so I started working on it, started researching, and guess what? I hit all the same roadblocks that everybody in my family had ever hit. And so I'm finishing that year more frustrated than I began because I didn't know anything. Everything I'd set out to do, I'd failed at. And it was during that time that I had a dream. Now... Will talked about dreams. I'm going to talk about dreams. Do we have any dreamers in this house? Okay, I kind of suspected. So I'm in good company today. You know what I'm talking about then? Like you go to sleep at night and you feel like the God of the universe is talking to you in your language and that pizza doesn't get all the credit. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going to sleep and God's talking to you in a way that you can understand it. I'm not, I had a dream like that. And I won't tell you the dream in its entirety, but it had three parts that were very interesting. So in the dream, God began to talk to me about how he wanted to reshape this nation and change America through day and night prayer, specifically ending abortion. And so 
This was crazy for me because there were three parts of this dream that didn't make sense. One, I didn't know anything about abortion. And maybe you can relate to this, but listen, I've been a Christian all my life, but I just didn't care. I was content to let somebody else worry about that, but not me. Number two, I didn't know anything about prayer. And every Christian thinks they know about prayer until you have to lead a prayer meeting. Then it takes about five minutes to realize I need to figure out a little bit more about this. But number three, there was a man in my dream, and I knew that his name was Lou Engle. I didn't know Lou Engle. But I met him, and I talked to him in my dream. So this dream, it, it, you know, I look at it this way. It's like you have these things that bubble up from your day, you know, kitchen sink kind of dreams where it's just like, I don't even know what this is. It's just everything that happened to me this week. It wasn't like that. This dream came from somewhere else because it, it wasn't made up of stuff that I knew. And so I felt like God was putting a demand on me, which is such a weird thought. But I felt like I needed to respond to this dream. And so I started looking around. I found out there was a real guy named Lou Engle. He was really doing this thing in prayer. And uh, I got the phone number through a friend of a friend of a friend of a man who worked with him. So random. And I called him and I said, hey, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he goes, really? What was your dream? And I didn't expect it, but he totally took me seriously. And <laughs> I just thought it was so weird. So I told him the dream. And he said, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what God is sending us to do. We're going to Washington, D.C. to pray for the Supreme Court for the ending of abortion. And I thought, huh, what a coincidence. But I felt like God was putting a demand on me in that moment that something was shifting, something was changing, and I needed a yes in my heart. And more, rather than a yes, I had more questions. Do you guys do this? Um, do you play the confirmation game? You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, okay, God, we're going to make something here. You, you create this incredibly complex thing <laughs> that is impossible. And you say, okay, God, if you can do this, then I'll know that it's you talking to me. And of course, we're not supposed to test the Lord thy God. But then God looks at it and he's like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And he does it. And you look at it. <laughs> and you're like, well... But if you can do this, then I'll really know that it's you talking to me. All right, the confirmation game. I went into that mode, right, instead of having a yes in my heart. So I did that, and God confirmed to me in an overwhelming way. God, do you really want me to take time off work, vacation time, spend hard-earned money, go across the country? I lived in Colorado at the time. And go to Washington, D.C. to a prayer meeting. And he made it very clear that that's exactly what he wanted. So I showed up. Sometimes you just got to show up. So I show up. It's Martin Luther King Day, January 17th, 2005. I'm on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I took my 10-year-old daughter with me. And I didn't understand why we had to pray outside in January <laughs> for eight hours. It was zero degrees wind chill that day. This was a mess, but I showed up, and we were there, and we prayed, and I actually brought a picture of it I'd like you to see. Just I like show and tell, so if you could uh, please put up that first image for me. Um, the very, it's number one. That's not it. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> That's not it either. 
Number one. <laughs> nope, still not it. <laughs> nope. It's probably going to be the last one, so let's go there. <laughs> nope. Everybody close your eyes. Hey! <laughs> so this is it. So this is the actual prayer meeting. You can see in the background there, that's the Lincoln Memorial. That's where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. And uh, if you know Lou Engel, you might recognize him on the right third of the picture there. But if you look on the left, that blue sleeve, and you follow it out to the end of those fingertips that are stretched out, you'll see Will Ford. So Will Ford and I first came together for the very first time. We never knew each other, never met. We came together on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, right where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. And so we prayed that day, that night. We gathered at a local church, and there was a guest speaker, and it was Will Ford, and he brought out this cast iron kettle, and he told the story that night, the same one that he's just shared with you. And See, leading up to that moment, I had gotten my hands on a recording of Lou Engle preaching, and he, and he said this. I don't remember the whole message, but he made this one statement that pierced my heart. He said, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out when you find something like that, draw close to it and you'll hear your name called. And that, is that not the theme this morning? I heard them say that and it just, it pierced my heart. And of course he's talking about Moses. Here's Moses. He's, he's on the run, but he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert taking care of somebody else's sheep. Every day is just like all the other days, except for this one moment when one day is unlike all the other days, right? So he's going along, and God sets a bush on fire, and that's not unique. What's unique is that that bush didn't go out. We don't know how long that thing burned until he finally leaned into that moment. Was it a, was it a minute? Was it an hour? Was it a day? Did that thing burn all weekend while he was walking around with the sheep? How long did it take him to realize that it's not going on? How long have you been waiting for the burning bush in your life? How long's that thing been burning? Listen, this is what I love about God is he can set a bush on fire and it won't go out. So Moses, when he leans into his moment, what happens? He hears his name called. So I had one prayer after this painful year one prayer in my heart, God, I need to hear my name called. And so I go to this meeting and I'm listening to the story of the kettle. And it was that night that Will, see, it had been one year exactly since my dad died. So I was, I was a mess already. But then Will shared this, that this kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett, who gave it to Nora Lockett, who gave it to Will Ford Sr., to Will Ford Jr., to Will Ford III, the man on the stage. And my 10-year-old daughter leaned over to me and said, Daddy, he just said our name. What was my prayer? God, I need to hear my name called. I had no idea God would be that literal with answering my little prayer. But I went up and I met Will and we talked after the meeting. We started comparing notes and he said, well, where were your lockets from? And I said, I don't really know. We'd, you know, my dad's family was from Kentucky. And he said, well, our lockets were down in Louisiana. And he asked, how did your lockets spell their name with one T or two? And I said, two. And he said, well, our lockets only spelled it with one. And we just thought it was this amazing coincidence. But it was enough. 
Listen, God plucked me out of the marketplace and I became a full-time missionary in Washington, D.C. with Lou Engle 15 years ago. And it, that, that moment was enough that it changed me. And it, it, Will and I struck up a friendship that night, but it, it continued to grow and grow and grow. Listen, for the last 15 years, we've just been running together and just doing life together, trying to figure out how to love each other well. And I kind of think that's how this is supposed to work. I love this man. I love his family. I fight for his dreams. He fights for mine. I really do think that's how this is supposed to work. But I became a full-time missionary in Washington, D.C., and it was at the beginning of that. See, I direct a house of prayer on Capitol Hill. How many of you have been to Washington, D.C.? Oh, wow. Okay, a lot of you. Did you, like, go with a high school tour group? Or... Yeah, you should come now. Like I tell everybody, you should come to D.C. All the demons come. You should come, too. It's a quiet place. Nothing's going on right now anyway. Little thing I like to call job security. (laughs) Um, But we had a dream at the very beginning of our house of prayer, and I do want to share this dream because it's important to the story. In the dream, we're in a huge building that's filled with courtrooms. And we're being led from one courtroom to the next. And the Lord spoke through this dream and he said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts or I will deal with it in mine. And at the end of this long hall was a huge courtroom and on the door it said Appomattox Courthouse. Now, you probably slept through, I'm going to assume you slept through American history class like I did. So let me just give you a little 101. Is that okay? So here it is, 1861 to 1865. Maybe you didn't know this, but we fought a civil war. (laughs) So it's March and April of 1865. General Lee, who's leading the Confederate Army, he's cut off in Richmond and Petersburg, Virginia. And the Union Army has put a siege on him there, and they break through. And so Lee is in retreat across the state of Virginia. He's trying to get to a place to resupply because he was running out of ammo, and they're out of food. His men are, are they're, they're just, they don't have anything left. And they get to the middle of the state, a place called Sailor's Creek. And it was there that he got stuck in the mud and he had to turn the cannon around. And he made his last stand in the front yard of this farmhouse that was there. And the Union Army uh, came out of the tree line in the back. And they actually fought around this farmhouse. But that was the last battle of the American Civil War. Three days later, on April 9th, Lee surrendered at a place called Appomattox Courthouse. So, there's your history lesson, but this is, this is kind of serious stuff for us because God was taking language from an injustice of our nation's past, and he was injecting it into a moment that we are in in this generation. So for him to take Appomattox out of our past and drop it into now, that had our attention. And the invitation was that we would have an opportunity to deal with an injustice so that he doesn't have to. We've had this one prayer, and I can't explain it, but maybe you'll understand it. But we've said all these years, God, we don't want to be driven back to another Appomattox. That's why it's so important that we pray, even with All In 2020, that you contend for the destiny of Alabama and, and its prophetic destiny to change and touch the nation. Because God is giving us opportunity right now to reshape the world and to end injustice in the land. So we've prayed all these years. 
Now, fast forward. Lou Engel was going to do one of these big prayer gatherings in the state of Virginia, and he called and he said, hey, if we're going to do this in Virginia, we have to go pray at Appomattox Courthouse because of that dream. So he flew into town, and we took a little team, and we went to the real Appomattox, and uh, we prayed in the house where Lee surrendered to Grant. We prayed for revival in America right there, the end of conflict. And we went into the visitor center as we were leaving, and Lou Engel and I stepped up to a bookshelf side by side, and he grabbed the first book off the shelf that caught his eye and opened it to the first random page. What is it about God that he likes to make books fall open to random pages? We did this. So Lou opens it to this random page, and if you could put up image number two, please. This is the page that he turned to. The last shot, the Battle of Lockett's Farm. And he let out a shudder, and he asked me, what is this? And I had no idea. I'm in another moment where I'm hearing my name called. And, and I didn't know what this was, but you can look it up for yourself. But I bought this book and found out that that last battle that Lee fought was in the front yard of a family named Lockett, spelled with two Ts. That's how I spell my name. And so I thought, this is fascinating. Like, God, what, this can't be a coincidence. What are, you, what are you saying here, God? It was right about that time that my older brother got the breakthrough on our family genealogy. And he called me and he said, you're not going to believe this. I, I got the whole family tree. I got us back to 1645. We came in as settlers through Virginia. And I said, Virginia, if I got a Virginia story for you. And I started to tell him this story about the Civil War. And he stopped me and he says, that's not that place by Sailor's Creek, is it? I said, that is exactly where it is. And he said, oh, I just found the documents on that. That was our family. I'm just letting this sit for a second because I think you're getting it. So you understand that God released a dream. And after years of praying that Appomattox dream, I find out that the last battle of the Civil War happened in my family's front yard. And I'm, I'm, I'm reaching here. I'm, God, what do you want us to do? I actually got my team, put them in a van. We went down. We found this place. It's in the middle of nowhere. If you could put up that next image. This is the Lockett Farmhouse. It's been preserved. If I could take you up close to it, you'd see it's still riddled with bullet holes from the day of battle. Looks like Swiss cheese. But right there in the front yard is that historical marker. So you don't think I'm exaggerating. Here Lee fought his last battle. And so we were there and I... I went up and I knocked on the door and the man that lives there now, he invited me in and I was stunned when I walked in and framed and hanging on the wall was my locket genealogy, the family tree, and I had my brother's research with me. It was exactly the same. This was my family. And he asked me, he said, how much do you know? And I said, not much. And he said, you know, some of you guys left here and went to Kentucky. That was the only part that we did know. And he said, some left and went to Alabama. Some were very involved in some significant historical events, but then he said this, some left and went to Louisiana. And in some cases, those handwritten census ledgers had a clerical error, and they dropped one of the T's. And I thought, wait a minute. This can't possibly be true, can it? What I'm thinking right now, but I gathered all this up, and I flew down to Dallas, and I sat down with Will and his family, and we just laid this out on a table, and well, why don't you share what we found out? So he, he flies from D.C. to Dallas, and we just, we just talked and prayed and cried, honestly, for 
few hours. See, my family, the oldest known man was a man named Isaac Lockett. He shows up in the 1870 census. In that census, he's 90 years old, so 1870, that's five years after slavery. His last name was Lockett, and most slaves, you probably know, were, they took on the names of the people who owned them. Right? And in that census, he's there in Lake Providence, Louisiana, but in that census, he said he was originally from Virginia, where Matt's family originally came from, where they came, they settled. And so we looked at it, and his family at that time was like the only lockets in the area. So it led us into another year of research, and here's what we learned. The years of research, we learned this. It was Matt's family who owned my family, where that kettle pot comes from. So think about it. Here's my family down in Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the family that we're born into, the places where we live, maybe, that's not, maybe none of that's a mistake. They're there in Lake Providence praying for the ending of slavery. And then up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then, because he's the God of the past and the future, Mr. Poemo weaves two family storylines together with Matt and I so we can war against injustice in our day and cry for awakening our time. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Yes, Lord. Y'all sit down. We got two more things. <laughs> But wait, there's more. So here's our Alabama connection. This is so huge for me. This, is really, this really gets me to my heart. There were two people from Alabama, Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett. They were from Virginia, and they decided to come and settle down in Marion, Alabama. He was a planner. He was, a, a, he was also, a, yeah, there they go. He was a planner. He was a, uh, a lawyer. And between the two of them, they had 11 children. Napoleon Lockett uh, was a colonel for the Confederacy. He had, a, just by himself, he had 126 slaves just himself. Between he and his 11 children, they owned about 1,000 slaves. But the interesting thing is this. Mary Lockett, she was like the Southern Belle aristocrat, and she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired someone to design the Confederate flag. And she hand-sewed it in her house. And took it by horse and carriage to her friend, Jefferson Davis. In other words, Matt's family is the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. All right? And so, and so and put that uh, next image up there. This is the Confederate White House with, uh, with, uh, with the, the, star, the flag that she created, the stars and the bars. All right? And they thought, well, that looks too much like the Union flag on the battlefield. So then they created another flag, which is this one right here, the next one which is the uh, Confederate battle flag. But here's the thing. Because God heard the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists, even in this family, we'll tell that in a second. Because God heard the prayers of those people, listen, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up. Next slide. The flag of surrender goes up in the front yard because of prayer. So what you need to understand is that it wasn't this story that connected Will and I. If, if God had told us this story the night we met, we probably would have blown up. 
and not survived. Relationally, I don't know that we would have survived. It's too much. You, you, you folks have no idea. Like, we've had to do some deep digging relationally once we found this out. We, Will and I had been running together for almost a decade before we knew any of this. So I would sit in these meetings, and he would tell the story of the kettle. And I was so inspired because we didn't know my family history. But then the lid comes off, so to speak. And I find out that my connection to the story is to that of the slave owner. Do you understand? That was hard. That was painful because now I couldn't take the easy way out and just say, well, you know, I wasn't there. You weren't there. Get over it. Now, how many of you have heard that? And I'm speaking to my African-American brothers and sisters today. I know that that is a common sentiment that said, but see, now the pain of a community had a face, and it's one that I loved. And I think this is what God is doing in the nation right now. He, he needs us to realize that we need each other. But here's the thing. See, as painful as that was to find out, once the lid came off, man, the, it seemed like there was no end to what God wanted to show about the the history. And so we went back a little bit further. God supernaturally led me to this history book, and I'm reading about how revival during the Revolutionary War in a previous generation, had revival had come to that region of Virginia, and it was listing that the results of that revival were that many men had been added to the itineracy of the Methodist circuit riders. Now, we have any Methodists or former Methodists in the room this morning? Come on. I, got, I became a Christian in the Wesleyan Church. This is awesome. I love the history of the Methodist Church because at the beginning, these, these guys, they see the circuit riders, they were the hardcore evangelists. People were spreading out in the frontier and there were no churches, so they took the gospel to the frontier as missionaries. And so the, in their horse saddlebags, they carried Bibles and hymnals, but they also carried at that time in history another thing, and it was called a manumission form. It was a legal document that allowed you to set slaves free. Now, how'd you like to be in that altar call where the gospel is preached and you come forward to be saved, and then you are told, oh, by the way, it's for freedom that Christ sets you free, and you're given the opportunity to set your slaves free at the same time. Listen, we know that is exactly what happened because everywhere the circuit riders went, the population of freed slaves exploded. And this is what I'm declaring to you and to the state of Alabama today is that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to not just transform the human heart, but to reshape the culture in the world around us. Guys, that's powerful. We are preaching that same gospel today. The same gospel that would, that would cause somebody to set another man free. I believe that's what God is doing in our today, that we're about to see a jailbreak. Do you realize that this is the 400th anniversary of slavery in America? 1619 was the first slaves that came here on our shores. How long was Israel a slave in Egypt? 400 years are up, folks. Can we, can we move into this next year in faith that it's jailbreak time and the nation is going to be set free in this moment? That's powerful. So, you know, in my family, we had, I have family members in prison. I've done stupid stuff I'm not proud of. But then we had these folks back here who were contending for revival and the ending of slavery. Yeah, Matt had family members that owned slaves. We also had family members that, you know, 
fought for the abolition of slavery and also secretly taught slaves how to read and write, which we'll talk about that in a second. In other words, in all of our families, we have these things called generational curses and generational blessings. You ever see those dominating themes in families, some line where curse after curse or blessing after blessing? They represent these dominating themes of storylines. What God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt, the blessing or the curse. What storyline are we going to be a part of? Last thing. Got time for one more story? Yeah. All right. So, so the thing is with those Methodist circuit riders, it was one of my ancestors I found in this book, Daniel Lockett, was one of those circuit riders. So yes, we had slaves, slave owners in our family, but you go back a little bit further, God had already started something. He had already initiated a dream where we had a legacy of revival and abolition in my family. And so the question is, which storyline do you want to be a part of? And here's the perfect example. So Will had mentioned earlier that it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read and write. It was actually illegal to even teach them how to read and write. And so even after slavery ended, it still wasn't very popular, particularly in Virginia. And so former slaves were trying to become literate, but they would oftentimes do it in secret. And so one night, a former slave there at the Lockett, plant, uh, the Lockett homestead She's trying to teach her son how to read and write, and in walks Lucy Lockett, and she catches them in the act. Only instead of there being consequences, she actually looks at the mom and she says, no, what you've chosen to do is very wise. And she then begins to help. She begins to tutor this young boy. And we know this story because that young boy was Robert Russell Moton, and he recorded it in his autobiography. He went on to replace Booker T. Washington as president of Tuskegee Institute. He was an educational advisor to presidents and legislatures. And if you could put up that last image for me. In 1922, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial. Where 41 years later, Dr. King would stand on that exact same spot and declare, I have a dream. And 41 years from that moment, Will and I would meet on the same spot for the first time. So mind you, mind you, this happened to two men who were led by dreams to the Lincoln Memorial on MLK Celebration Day because of prayer, <laughs> because of a dream. We were led to this place where Dr. King said in his I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech isn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's this dream king called the King of Kings whose father still answered the son's prayer. Father, I pray that they would be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers that started this place 200, 200 years and one day ago today. Maybe the stars are still falling on Alabama. This has been a presentation of Word Alive International Outreach, 122 Allendale Road, Oxford, Alabama. Reach us by phone at 256-831-5280 or at our website, wordalive.org. This has been a production of Word Alive Creative Arts.